Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I have a special guest co-host, and we are going to talk about the new Twilight 2000 role-playing game from Free League. Thanks for listening to Fluff and Crunch, where we talk about the connection and sometimes disconnect between system, setting, and story in tabletop RPGs. Hey, thanks for listening. Today is the first time that we are recording an episode with a special co-host. Chris and I are trying to coordinate our schedules across hemispheres and holidays. And so he and I talked about me doing a special episode with a guest co-host, a buddy of mine with whom I have gamed a lot over the last uh, several years. And we're going to talk today about some of the basics and some of the interesting pieces of the new uh, Free League Twilight 2000 game. And so I'm here with my good friend, John, uh, and John, I think, has some really interesting perspectives that we're going to offer them on this game and uh, and the type of gaming experience it offers because he is a retired military combat veteran and he's also a current law enforcement officer. So it's been interesting as we've played through this game, and thus far we have not played it as a full-fledged RPG. We've used it just as a as a skirmish system, as we've gotten to know the system, the combat system primarily. Um, but it's been interesting for me to hear his feedback about how the system functions and the sorts of decisions it incentivizes or forces and the results that it pumps out and uh, based on his real life experiences. And so that's what got me thinking about, hey, we should do an episode about this. So John, I'm gonna give you a second to introduce yourself if you wanna be like, you know, vague and mysterious or whatever you want to do. But uh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll get into um, our overview of the, the game and then we'll focus on the combat system. Hi, I'm John. I've uh, been role-playing since I was probably 10. Started with, like everyone, Dungeons and & Dragons and uh, took a hiatus for most of my 20-year military career, uh, largely due to the fact that it was hard to find people to game with consistently or who didn't think role-playing was for nerds at the time. Now we're in the renaissance where everybody loves role-playing, thanks to Big Bang Theory, I guess. And uh, anyway, I think today we're, we're going to be here talking about Free League's uh, new Twilight 2000 RPG, which is uh, kind of near and dear to my heart. I never played the original, but I always wanted to, and I always thought it was really cool because of my military background and experience. I uh, found it an interesting genre to game in yeah you know i had the original i remember i got the original boxed set when it came out and i think i've mentioned this in another episode but i was just so taken aback by the idea that there was a character generation worksheet and then there was a character sheet so you 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 built your character on the worksheet which had all these multiple like equations set up on them and then you you transcribe the final thing onto it. So it was very crunchy, very simulationist, very much of that mid eighties, uh, like simulationist strain of gaming. And, um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, the idea of twilight 2000 originally, when it came out in the mid eighties was that there was, there was going, there was a land war between, uh, East block and NATO forces, Soviet and U S forces in the year 2000 in Eastern Europe. What Free League has done is they've just gone back to the late 80s, early 90s and rewritten history um, to create this war 
in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And now the default is you either start in Poland or you start in Sweden, because of course the Free League people are from Sweden, and so they, they didn't want to leave their own country out of the, the destruction. Uh, so I had played the original only a little. I had the box, I had some of the adventures, I read it, but it was one of those things that I could just never get my Dungeons and Dragons friends to uh, to want to be into. So I was excited when this thing came out. I almost backed it in the Kickstarter, but I decided not to. And then it appeared at my local gaming store and they informed me that I had ordered a copy of it, which I still don't ever remember doing. <laughs> but you want to go over like what's in it real quick. So if people aren't familiar with it, because it does. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of piggyback on that, I know the original was full of crunch. And uh, so lately my gaming has taken me kind of away from crunch more to the 2D20 uh, Conan and, and uh, some of the less crunchy RPGs. And so I waited to see what this was going to be like when you got it and, and saw that, okay, there is some crunch. There is more crunch here than most free league games, but it is eminently playable, easily learned and and quite fun. Yeah, it's based on the Year Zero engine. If you're not familiar with the Year Zero engine, it's what sits behind Alien, uh, Mutant Year Zero, Tales from the Loop, uh, Forbidden Lands. I've played Forbidden Lands. I've played Alien. I've played Mutant Year Zero. And it's all die sixes. That version of it is all die sixes. And in order to be successful, you roll a stat plus a skill. And all these, you only have four stats. And you have... Um, it's usually three skills per stat. So for example, in this game, you have agility, you have strength, agility, intelligence, and empathy. And under agility, you have driving mobility, which is movement, running, and stuff like that, and ranged combat. So there are 12 skills divided into three groups sitting under four stats. And the other ones are pretty much the same. Uh, it has you know four stats and then skills clustered under each. You add your... Um, your, your rating in the stat plus the rating in the skill, you roll that many die sixes. Now, this is in the original version of Year Zero. And for every six you get, you get a success. As long as you get at least one six, you are successful. If you get more sixes, you can unlock other things. This is different. And this is different in a way that I like far better than any of the other Year Zero engines. I used to have Alien. I got rid of it, actually, because I didn't like it. But I really like the changes. Um, let's talk about how they changed the dice mechanic in this. Because if you're familiar with Year Zero, there is a significant but simple change uh, that you'd find in Twilight 2000. What they did, instead of it just being die sixes, it's six, eights, tens, and twelves. But a six is still a success. So the idea is that you have a stat that's rated A through D. A is a die 12, B is a 10. Um, C, which is average, like grade school, is an eight, and D is poor, and that is a six. And so when you gather up your, your, your dice, one die for your stat and one die for your skill, your skills and your stats are rated A through D. And so you, you pick the requisite die for each of those letters. So you might have like a B and a C. So that'd be a 10 and an eight. And you roll those, and it's still sixes or above. So I'm not going to get into a probability study. They did that in the book, and they have a table that shows you what kind of likelihood you are to roll a success on a, a 10 versus a 12 versus a 6 or whatever. But if you think about it, three out of eight uh, options on a die eight are successful. Six, seven, eight. 
whereas on a die six, it's only one sixth. So by adding these three extra types of dice, eights, tens, and twelves, it dramatically changes the probability of being successful and also having some residual success to like do more damage or or things like that. What did because I know and that may scare some people off, but you know they do specifically state that you know you should only that it is difficult to be successful under this system and you should only roll when it counts. So, you know, for combat, obviously you're going to roll because it counts, but if you want to get in a car and start it up, that shouldn't be a roll unless you have to fix it first or, or something like that. Or like, or like drive dangerously through city streets while being shot at. Yeah. I, I really like the, the addition of the other three dice. I think that it, it it changed the feel of the system. And I, I can, I won't go on a, I won't start harping on alien. I just, I didn't like how that dice mechanic worked with sixes being the only successes. And even when you have a huge handful of it, it just seemed there wasn't a whole lot of success at the table from a bunch of colonial Marines, for example, who are supposed to be, you know, top not well-trained <laughs> troops. And they're like, you know, fumbling and stumbling like the Marx brothers. Um, so again, it's it's year zero, but with the addition of those three other dice and a six is still the the basic success. So it changes things dramatically. Um, let's talk about character creation just a little bit so people have a clue. Um, how would you describe it? Uh, it's a lot like, uh, well, there's two types. I believe there's like an archetype. Um, and, you know, that's a, kind of a quick start method. And then there's a life path method, which is a, kind of similar to Traveler, if anyone's familiar with Traveler. and uh, I like I like both. I think both are are, are valid. Um, it is it is definitely not your standard Dungeons and Dragons type of uh, character creation. No, I, I like I like that you have the options. Like if you have an idea for a, a if you have some kind of a narrative flair and you have a really clear idea for your character, you can do this life path method and you build the thing out from you know from nothing to something. Whereas if you just say I want to be the grunt or I want to be the medic, or I want to be the officer. You can just grab those archetypes, modify some pieces of it. You know, there's several steps and you just make choices at these few options, at these, these decision points. And then you have a character and you're, you're ready to go. Uh, one thing to be clear about is that this is, I, I, I would say that it's, it's analogous to a point by system in that everybody starts off with the same amount of, I don't know, call it like juice to shift around between your stats and your skills and things like that. Whether you choose the life path or you choose the archetype uh, approach, you end up having a character that is different, but has the same amount of uh, power of oomph of points just spread around differently. Which I think is, is a really valid way of doing it because, you know, I can create that civilian EMT that's really good at, at uh, medical and you can create that machine gunner who's like animal mother from, you know, the movie. And, yeah. and, uh, and they can both be really good at those things, but also spread skills around to where they, one might also be uh, very persuasive and the other one might be really good at, you know, reconnaissance and surveillance and those types of things. Yeah. Like I could make the argument that your typical green beret nco is going to be overall a more capable person than your average like pfc or specialist who's a combat medic who's only been in the service maybe like three years and the green beret has been in like eight or nine years i could make the argument that if i were going to assign 
skill and stat points to that person, the Green Beret would get more in total, but the system doesn't do that. So everyone starts out equally capable, just apportioned differently. It works fine. I mean, that might not be to everyone's taste, you know, because there are some people who are going to be, well, that doesn't make any sense. The 19 year old, you know, guy just out of uh, medical specialty school in the military shouldn't, you know, be able to have as many points as somebody who's a 35 year old staff sergeant with, you know, years of experience under their belt. But yeah, I mean, that's just how the system is. And it, you know, it, it works. Yeah. No, I, I think that works fine. I don't, I don't think that's an issue. And given that that is more the norm, like, you know, you think about fifth edition and the norm in fifth edition now is you get a standard stat array. So everybody gets the same stats. You just spread them around differently. I mean, we think about all the modifius games that we've played and they are effectively the same thing. So no problem there. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, the core mechanic is stat plus skill. So you, you, you pick the, the die that meets your stat and the die that meets your skill. You roll those two. Every six or above that you roll is a success. You only need one to be successful. More enable you to do more damage or have other options. Now, the nice thing is uh, this only, as far as I know, this only comes as a box set. I haven't seen it in any other form. And the box itself has a, a perfect bound softback player's guide and referee's guide. It has a set of dice that are very nice, uh, that are specialized to the game, that has explosions on them and, and little target sites for successes and has ammo dice, which we'll talk about later. It even has a hit location die. So you end up getting, what is this, 15 dice uh, that come with the set. You get a deck of... Um, Encounter and uh, initiative cards. I believe that is a deck of doo, 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 how many? You get 62 cards, 52 encounter cards and 10 initiative cards. You get some blank character sheets. You get a ton of uh, maps and a bunch of cardboard counters to use in the combat um, encounters. So it's a, it's a nice sturdy box and the materials I'm really impressed with. Now I've heard some people gripe that the maps are not like dry erasable or whatever. They're not, uh, but they are heavy. Uh, and that there's a double-sided large, like poster size foldout map. One of the area, the, like the theater of operations in Poland and you flip it over and it's a theater of operations in Sweden. And then there's a bunch of smaller maps that you can use for, uh, for combat encounters. So I don't know. What do you think about, uh, what do you think about the contents, like quality and variety? Is there anything missing or what do you think? Well, I'd love for the screen to be included because I think, uh, you know, I haven't been able to see the screen yet. You can see the front side, you know, on Amazon or whatever, if you go there, but you can't see the, what's actually included and nor can I find a description. So if anybody out there has it, wants to post a, a written description of what's in it, that'd be great. That'd be way cool as a review somewhere so that people could see it. The maps uh, really sort of look like they have, even though they're hexagonal, they have a military map feel to them. Yeah. So for those who are you know used to that or who like that, uh, that's really cool. They are extensive. Like you've got all of like central Poland and, and I don't know exactly how you would describe. I think it's southern it Sweden. Southern, yeah. um, and and it's uh, it, for a hex crawl, which is a lot like, is it Forbidden Lands yeah. that they did? Um, if you're familiar with that and you like the idea of just going to a new hex and seeing what's there. This game as a more modern up-to-date version of Forbidden Lands where you, your, your hex crawling is great. 
the encounter maps are really good. I mean, obviously at a certain point, you know, there's seven, eight, ten of them, and they're double-sided, I believe. says there are, what is it, uh, four battle maps for specific scenario sites, and those are double-sided. Those are the bigger ones. And then there are 16 modular battle maps, and those are things like a farmhouse or a forest or a, you know, tumble down city or a square with some buildings around it. You have a lot of different options. So they're, they're, so they're, they're, they're good. They're really good. Um, and basically you could, if you can figure out with a paint program or something, a way to put a hex grid over uh, Google maps that you printed out, you can just make maps endlessly because all you need is, is a hexagonal grid or a way of measuring that. You know, I saw on the, uh, there's a, there's a Facebook group, that was created by a gentleman we know. And uh, someone in that Facebook group for this has started, has created a number of new maps that color-wise look like, look like the battle maps and have hexes all over them. You can download them. So you could, if you want, like take them to a print shop and print them to scale. Yeah, I'm impressed with the, with the contents, with not only the, the quantity, but the, the quality of the stuff. It's not junk. The art is good. Uh, you're right. The maps definitely have a, a you know, military feel to them uh it has a couple other things in it too some like game world artifacts like op orders operations orders to give you a sense as a player of like what happened in the moments before the story you know by default begins and you know, you mentioned forbidden lands and the idea of like a survival hex crawl the 52 encounter cards are made for that like you could as gm you could explain the core system you could put these if you wanted to run American um, soldiers from the, the, the defunct 5th uh, Armored Division in Poland in April of 2000, which is where and when the default campaign starts, you could give them the good luck you're on your own order and then just pull out five or six cards and have those you know, on your side of the screen that we don't have. Uh, and the, the encounter cards have, um, they've got little coding uh, symbols on them. Like, is this an encounter that would take place on the road or, or in the woods at, at, you know, in the day or at night or at different things like that. And each card has like a fleshed out encounter. Like here's a band of brigands or here's, you know, like a burning truck or here's a blast crater from a nuclear artillery round or things like that like you could actually get going with virtually no story and then just build it from there yeah it's it's a it's a genius way of of being able to jump right into the game with especially for those who may not be too familiar with how they want to run something like this pseudo military apocalyptic hex crawl kind of game it, it really gives you everything you need to get started right away without having to know too much yeah, and the nice thing is that the referee's manual has uh, some details on each of those 52 encounters, some more information about it, so you can work through there. And then it has a number of, um, call them like stock locations fleshed out that you could drop in anywhere, and those correspond to some of the maps in the book. So yeah, I think that this is one of these games that, if it sounds interesting to you, the mechanics are really simple, and we're going to get into some of that here in just a moment. Uh, and the materials are such that you could immediately get into a story that's supposed to feel like Freely kind of wants to make this feel quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's enough here to run a campaign of months worth of gaming, assuming you meet a week every week or every two weeks without ever having 
to dip into anything else. Although, as Jeremy can tell you, there are a lot of old adventure modules for the old game that you could use with this with minimum change. From what I have, what I under, well, it's funny actually, because I have some of those. Uh, I have PDF copies of a number of them. And, uh, and frankly, I don't want to like throw shade on Game Designers Workshop, but when I go back and read those things now, 30 some years later, like they're not very, it's not that they're not good story-wise, but like they're not organized very well. Um, they really, they, they seem more like the product of disgruntled authors or of like wannabe historians rather than like the way adventure modules are written now, they're written almost like scripts that walk you so you can use it. Right. You can walk right through these things. You have to like read and think and think and think, and then build an adventure. More like an adventure seed kind of concept than really like a full on scenario. But the stuff is out there. Point is it's out there. There's a lot of information. You know, I, I think, I don't know if the stuff's available on drive through RPG or not. But, um, but people, yeah, but people will fleece you on eBay for them. I guarantee you that. I think they're available on drive through I think I've seen them there. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about the combat system because this is a, I mean, it's an RPG and yeah, I mean, let's face it. RPGs typically have lots of fighting in them, or at least fighting happens regularly. And this is a military survival RPG. So there's going to be some shooting in it. Uh, so let's talk about how that core mechanic works and how it plays out in combat. And uh, the one thing that stood out to me, I wouldn't say first or most, but it stood out to me a lot is that you really do need a map. Uh, unless you were going to run some, like, um, I mean, I guess if you had a combat encounter that took place between like maybe two or three characters in a room, or a very small locate, limited location like that, you could run it without a map. But once you start including ranged weapons and you want to have any appreciation for the use of terrain, you have to have maps. And that's why this thing comes with a bunch of maps. Yeah, I mean, Theater of the Minds would work for the right group. But if you don't have the right group, I think without maps, you could very easily end up into some heated discussions about what ranges you were at, who was in what cover when. Those kind of things. Yeah, and it, it, could, it could definitely get confusing. So I also think that one of the great things about this game is that the combat system mechanically is pretty simple, and yet it's not, um, it's not flat. It's not flat, and it's not too abstracted. It, it, takes, uh, it, it gets pretty gritty uh, in all the places that, from my experience, matter. It gets, it gets right down to the, the brass tacks of combat. Uh, with firearms, especially in a way that is accessible to the average person who maybe doesn't know anything about that, but also it's not at the old school Phoenix Command level where it takes four hours to determine the vector of every piece of shrapnel that went off from a hand grenade. You won't spend a lot of time doing that kind of stuff. You'll just have fun with rolling these really cool dice that virtually tell you everything you need to know. You just need to figure know how the system basically explains to you which two dice or one dice you need to pick up and roll. And and that's really it. And then it's just a matter of being able to interpret those dice rolls. I traditionally have been a theater of their mind GM, but I know that when I run this, I will use these materials. I will use these maps or I have as we have, I will use minis. And I'll, we'll figure out a way to use, you know, measuring sticks or something like that to, to make sense of range. Because I actually think that the use of, the, rather the appreciation for terrain and cover 
and right. and concealment and range those are those are so essential to how small arms combat actually works Absolutely. and so if you want this to kind of feel ish like something real then you have to involve those pieces. You have to use those things. I agree. So if you're not familiar with uh, the Free League, uh, the, 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 the initiative, not the initiative, sorry, like the encounter system, you have a slow action and a fast action, which is kind of like a major or a minor and a, and a full action. I mean, lots of games have this as a norm. And there's a list of fast actions and a list of slow actions. Like shooting at someone with a ranged weapon is a slow action. Attacking someone in melee is a slow action. Aiming is a fast action. Like dashing a short distance is a fast action. So there's a menu of options and you have one of each of those. Um, I like how they do modifiers. This is actually one of the cleanest ways that I've seen modifiers done. It's uh, it's an interesting mechanic. Basically, as Jeremy talked about, you're going to have a, a 12-sided dice as an A, a 10-sided dice as a B. If I had, say, a, my shooting uh, skill, uh, small arm skill was a 12 and an 8, and I had two negative modifiers, one because I failed to aim, and one because the person was in cover, I would step my 12-sided dice down to a 10-sided dice and my 8-sided dice down to a 6-sided dice. So now I'm a lot less likely to succeed because of those two negatives. But the modifiers aren't just modifying which dice I use. They're not causing me to do a lot of addition or subtraction. There's no math. It's just, okay, if this is a minus 2, I'm going to step down my highest dice and I'm going to step down my lowest dice. Yeah. And you have, you have options in that, but yeah, it, it's just modifiers, positive or negative. It's, it just changes which die you use, which is, I think, I mean, that's just boneheaded easy. Let's go ahead and actually talk about our experiences with that. I mean, we're not going to go through like this was a notional combat, you know, like we've done in some of the other episodes, um, but commentary on, I mean, and, and by the way, if you have the book, I'm on page starting on page 57 of the um, of the player's manual. That's where the crunchy bits of combat uh, come in. Close combat, which is mainly ranged explosives. Um, there's a list of modifiers on page 65. You know, like if the target is moving, if the the person, if the things at medium range is in full cover, is if there's heavy rain or wind. You know, they have all these these modifiers. Since we've played a couple of these. Uh, like notional skirmish bits, which is what we've done. I mean, what, what, how would you, how would you sell this? Does not sell. How would you describe this to someone and say, like, this is how the rule, this is how the rules actually make it seem more realistic, or this is how it forces decisions or behaviors or reactions that you would line up against reality and say, yeah, that's that's legitimate. So in in infantry combat. It's, it's all about fire and maneuver. It's all about cover. It's all about getting your heavier weapons into positions where they can rain lead down on the enemy from a covered and or concealed position while you maneuver other elements around the flank. And this has rules that allow you to do that explicitly, easily, and it simulates to the, the best extent that I've seen in a role-playing game how ranged combat would actually goes in the real world the uh, is definitely there's there's a rule called overwatch as a fast action you can assume an overwatch position against a specified hex in line of sight and then that allows you to fire your weapon as if it was aimed because you're also aiming so you can have a couple guys use their recon skill to crawl into position 
behind in a covered and concealed area, and then overwatch where you think the enemy might come be at while you have another team bound forward on the flank a little bit, and they bound up a certain uh, couple of hexes or, say, 20 or 30 meters, and then they can assume a covered and concealed overwatch position where they're watching where you think the enemy is going to come through. And then you can have that other team that was laying there overwatching move forward. So if at any time your enemy pops up while somebody's out in the open moving, your guys on overwatch will have the option to shoot at the enemy before the enemy kills their friends who are moving in the open. This is how it's done in, the, in reality. And the nice thing is after you, after you use that fast action to assume overwatch, you can then you break the initiative order at any point when that you know, triggering event happens. I mean, it's, and obviously there are lots of games that have, um, you know, you hold your action, you wait for a trigger. That's essentially what this is. But then you use the slow action to fire. And then the next time your turn comes around, you can just use the fast action to stay in overwatch or shift where you could stay in overwatch, but shift the hex that you're looking at. And incidentally, all the hexes on the, the skirmish maps are 10 meter. I think they're 10 kilometer on the, 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 area maps but yeah I, I think that it makes a lot of sense because you know if you're there with the m60 which is a belt-fed machine gun and you're going to belt-fed machine gun and it's got a bipod unless you're you know chuck norris and chuck norris i guess doesn't get penalties for firing stuff like that but in this game you would you definitely would uh you'd set that up and you would pick an area and you would pick an area that would enable you to put down fire on that area if a threat comes through that area to your guys as they're moving exactly and that's that's how it's done that's real infantry tactics and it works uh, in the games we've played it's worked really well the overwatch has saved some lives uh, of, of the two characters i was playing or three in the second game uh, it definitely was beneficial just like it would be in reality so and it was modeled in a way that I haven't really seen. I know other games allow you to like hold an action, but it just doesn't seem to work to the same level of detail that this does. And I think that's not necessarily because of the holding an action mechanic, but it's all of the other sort of elegant mechanics that work in with this. Like suppression. Yes. Suppression is huge. Uh, if you get, let's see. If you're hit by enemy fire, anyone's hit by enemy fire, whether it's deflected by armor or not, if you're hit, uh, you have to roll what's called a coolness under fire check. And if you fail your cuff check, you are suppressed. Like you reflexively hit the ground like a normal human being is going to do when they lose their, their stuff for a moment. And they just got shot and you're going to lose shot at. You're going to lose an action. Um, but this is if you are hit. You have to be hit. That's at the bottom of page 67, left column. Yeah. Now, the nice thing is they have an NPC role that you can just say that any NPC that's hit is automatically suppressed. So that would favor the, uh, the PCs a little bit. And allow combat to be a little speedier. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So the nice thing is if you have, you think if you, if you, if you have players who are intelligently using the Overwatch rules and the, and a, you know, the proper kind of weapon that can lay down a bunch of, of lead, and that you couple this with this uh, suppression uh, rule, you know, you could be in a position where you suppress NP, you suppress enemies, and so they're hugging the dirt, which then enables your guys to keep moving and take up a more advantageous position, which again is exactly the way it, it actually works. So again, very, two very elegant uh, pieces of this the game that really make it seem 
to me to have that more realistic feel. And the nice thing too is that the uh, the counters, the little cardboard counters, which are reminiscent if you played like old Avalon Hill or SPI War Games, those square kind of chunky uh, cardboard chits. Uh, there's a collection of those and some other some circular um, markers that come with it, and all the the, the little soldiers. They have one side where the soldier's standing and the other side where the soldier is prone, which is nice. And there are also suppression markers. So you can put those down on the map to, to you know, mark a, uh, a PC or an NPC as having been suppressed. And then you'd pull that off the next round. I think that's a nice, that's a nice touch. Makes it easier for the, the GM to, uh, you know, to keep track of what's going on in the, in the firefight. I want to talk about ammo. Because I really like, I really, really dig the ammo system. So when, uh, when you fire a weapon, say an M16A2, you are assumed to fire one round unless you say you want to use ammo dice. And the box comes with how many? Let me, let me see. It comes with six ammo dice. And six, the ammo dice are just dice sixes. And they're marked as normal, except for the one has an explosion and the six has a bullet. And it also has the number one and the number six on it. So you, if, if for some reason you wanted to, like if people around the table wanted to use their own dice, you don't have to, it's not like, you know, the Star Wars FFG dice that you need their fiddly dice. These, you just could know what numbers you're looking for. But every weapon, you're looking at some weapons. Like, tell us what's the rate of fire of, tell us a weapon and what its rate of fire is. So the M16A2 uh, assault rifle that we were just talking about, the standard issue for the Americans at that time, uh, its rate of fire is three. So how many dice would I be able to use? You could use up to three ammo dice. And what happens when you choose, if you don't use any ammo dice, and you fire a ranged weapon, you're assumed to only fire one round. And there's a base damage that that, uh, that weapon will do. It's a fixed damage. You don't roll for damage, which actually that's something that speeds up the game. So you do. So if you get one success, you do two damage. Now, if you get additional successes on your to hit roll, those just roll right into damage. So you can do extra damage and maybe achieve a critical hit, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute because I think those are cool too. But if you want to rock and roll and spray lots of lead downrange, you can choose to pick ammo dice up to the weapon's rate of fire. And that means adding these extra dice in. And when you roll, you roll these ammo dice, die sixes, every bullet, which would be a six, every bullet that shows up on one of these dice, these ammo dice that you roll uh, does additional damage on top of that. So you could potentially only roll one success to hit, but you could roll several additional bullets and do damage, or you can choose to use that for suppression. There's, there's different things that you, you can, um, you could hit another target in the same hex. It, the, the bullets that you roll on ammo dice provide you with additional options. But the cool thing, I love this. What happens with the, the amount of ammunition you spray downrange? So every number that you come up with, one through six on the ammo dice, is the number of rounds that you fire. And if you choose to fire more than one round. So you can burn through that 30-round magazine with those three dice in about two pulls of the trigger if you decide that I'm just going to roll my three dice with this rifle every time I can shoot because I want to get those extra effects. Now, what's, what's the rate of fire on an M60? Is it five? The rate of fire for the M60 is four. You could, roll four, you could, you could conceivably roll four extra points of damp, four, four bullets to have options to either do more damage or hit more targets or cause more wounds that is multiple hits on a single target. 
but the amount of ammunition you burn through is good. Like we had it, what was it just about a week or so we did this. Uh, I was running uh, some like Russian brigands and, uh, and one of them burned through like 24 rounds in one pull. Right, which is easy to do. Yep. And this is a game again of, you know, survival where you don't have a supply chain. So, you know, while it's important to use enough bullets to get the job done so you don't end up dead in that encounter, you still kind of have to think about, you know, it's, it's also important for the next encounter that I have a bullet left and uh, you can really much, much like real life. If you're not cautiously, judiciously thinking about what you're doing with ammo, you can be out of it before you know what happened. And the game also has interesting rules for reloading in a hurry. When you do get that click, and the bolt of your weapon locks back and there's nothing but ringing ears and the smell of cordite in your nose and that that sinking, gut-wrenching feeling when you realize my magazine is out of ammunition and I need to rapidly put another magazine in this weapon before the enemy gets to me. Reloading. When you want to reload, you make a ranged combat roll. If you are successful in that roll, it's a fast action. If you fail... It's a slow action. Yes, you, you, your full attention, and, and the game pretty much says that if you don't use your fast action to aim, some weapons, pistols, submachine guns, carbines, you're going to have a minus one, so you're going to step down one dice. Some weapons, like the M16 assault rifle, being a rifle, you're going to step down two dice for that. So it's aiming is, is super important in this game in order to, to make sure you're not penalizing yourself, but it does make sense because everything you do that takes away from the full focus of aiming in, in reality is going to make it very, very difficult to hit. Obviously, most people don't hit what they're shooting at if they don't aim. Because if you're pulling that thing off your shoulder and you're, sl you're, you're dropping a magazine, you're slamming the other magazine in, you're, you're slamming the bolt forward, I mean, talking about an M16 or one of those variants, and then you shoulder the thing again, that's disruptive to you aiming. Which makes it even better because then it, it's, you know, if you're better at ranged combat, you have more chance to do that. Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about with the ammo dice is the little explosions. We haven't talked about the push mechanic, which is common to all the Year Zero games, and it's here. So why don't you, let's talk about that for a little bit. So uh, the one uh, has a, a little explosion picture on it, uh, opposite of the, obviously, the bullet, which is what you want to get. And uh, it doesn't do anything to you if you if you decide not to push. It's just one more round that you fired. But if you decide that you want to push the roll, meaning that you want to re-roll anything that didn't succeed, you can do that. But if you've already rolled one of those explosions, that's going to be something that affects you negatively if you've already rolled a one. And if you roll any more ones, say I decide I want to push all three of my ammo guys because they didn't come up with what I wanted. I'm going to re-roll them but I can't re-roll the one that had an explosion on it. And the other two might come up with ones, which would be really bad, or they might come up with good things like, like the bullet, which allows me to get uh, more damage. Yeah. I, I mean, the push mechanic, even outside of, uh, forget about ammo dice. You know, if you, if you push, you can, you re-roll all dice that are not successes or ones and you suffer a penalty depending on the nature of the task you are pushing. We don't need to get into that. But the nice thing with ammo dice is that if you are rocking and rolling and spraying a lot of lead, uh, this will attrit the weapon's reliability, which means your weapon might jam, your weapon might break. And, you know, you and I talked about this the last time we played. I mean, 
belt-fed weapons, unless you're careful, when you if you try to get crazy with a belt-fed weapon and you aren't being careful, a jam is going to happen. They, they do have a tendency uh, to belt-fed weapons, especially the ones that can spray the most lead, you have more of a tendency to jam the open bolt as opposed to the closed bolt just is, is more inherently uh, mechanically prone to having a stoppage or a malfunction. And so those, that, that mechanic right there really does simulate reality. And then when you get those interesting weapons, malfunctions, stoppages, jams, twisted belts, whatever the case may be, uh, that can create some really interesting drama in your game that you don't normally see too often in other games, unless, you know, okay, if you roll a D percent, if you roll a percentile and you get that 95 to hundred, then the game master has to figure out what that was. Oh, your weapon jammed or, you know, you're something They have to make it up here. It's, it's there. It's, it's all there in black and white for you. Yeah. I like the, the, the weapon reliability. I think that that makes sense. And, and it, the fact that, ammo dice exacerbates the potential or increases the potential for problems with your weapon because that just makes sense the more you fire over a shorter period of time the more likely you are experienced and it ablates or degrades that weapon now permanently although i'm doing a little air quotes because then when you have your techie characters you're you know you can you can come to them when your weapon's been degraded to a point that you're like wow this is really unsafe i keep having malfunctions and you can see if that that technical character who's basically like an armorer can possibly now their chance to shine because they can fix your group's belt fed weapon that you rely on to move maneuver and, and keep you alive. They can fix it. And now that person, that character got a time to shine just like the combat tanks get a chance to shine or the medic or your stealthy recon guy or any of that. Now, every weapon also has, in addition to its rate of fire and its reliability, uh, it also has a, uh, a crit threshold, which is usually I've looked and it looks like the crit threshold is always like one higher than the base damage. When you hit the crit threshold of a weapon, if that much damage gets through, and if someone has a flak vest or helmet or something like that, you know, cover, cover and armor can, can uh, attrit damage. But if that much damage gets through the, the target suffers a critical hit. And because, <clears throat> because we have hit locations, and again, there's a nice hit location die that you roll and it gives you either head, torso, legs, um, or arms for, uh, for physical attacks, uh, there's, a, there's a series of tables that you then roll on which tells you what is the critical hit. And for those of us from the 80s, when there were games from Iron Crown Enterprises like Rollmaster that had pages and pages of these things, um, this is heartwarming and nice, uh, but uh, but it's it's nice because it's not over the top. They're they're interesting because it tells you what happened. Like for example, a head could be nose crushed or a cracked skull, a gouged eye, brain hemorrhage, eyes or ear slashed, things like that. Each of these injuries is labeled as either lethal or not. Uh, if it's lethal, it gives a time limit as to when you have to start making death saves. Like in other Year Zero games, uh, time is kind of mushy. You've got, in this game, you have um, rounds, shifts, and then uh, stretches. And a round is 5 to 10 seconds. A shift, or rather, a stretch is 5 to 10 minutes, and a shift is like 5 to 10 hours. So the idea is that a cracked skull has a uh, time limit for a death save of, uh, of shift. 
Whereas like a brain hemorrhage, which is lethal, has a time limit of a stretch. So you're going to have to roll those death saves more often if you have your brain hemorrhaging than if you have a cracked skull. And then it also has the effects of it and it has the healing time. So the, the crits, I think, are um, they're flavorful. They're flavorful and they give you reasons for those medical characters to shine because there's definitely that chance for that, you know, medic call to be and then you know your your guy who's good with medical skills runs over and in a in a few round in a round or a stretch they're able to to do some medical roles that are able to lessen the severity of those crits and actually save lives which you know simulates possibly putting a tourniquet on or you know a, a, a tension pneumothorax where you like you know release the air pressure that's in the lung from a from a sucking chest wound I mean, these are things that people can do uh, in in reality that are actually have been proven to be life-saving skills on the battlefield that you do in a matter of seconds or minutes after someone's been wounded uh, with these lethal injuries. And it can it can take the lethality away until they get to more advanced treatment. Unfortunately, in this game, we don't usually have a field hospital to medevac people to. So the more advanced treatment may or may not be applicable. But uh, the interesting thing, too, with these criticals uh, is if the threshold is exceeded by two or more steps, the crit room, so if it's three and it's exceeded by two or more steps, you roll the, the injury twice and just take the most severe one. So understanding this game is, is pretty lethal, and it's really important to only get in fights when you have all the cards stacked in your favor and also to yeah. think about yeah, and you have, you have no choice, which, you know, obviously that's kind of up to the GM. Or, you know, there's um, a good reason to be in this fight in the first place. Like, we've just got to have that fuel or we're not going to make it across the river where we need to be before winter and we're going to stay here and starve and, and, and freeze, which are other things that could happen in this game. You can, you can uh, become hypothermic, sleep-deprived, dehydrated, or starved. And there's also radiation uh, because they're, the, the, as part of the, the background story, there, there, there were nuclear exchanges, um, like strategic nuclear exchanges, but there were also tactical like battlefield nukes used. And so uh, radiation is an issue. But yeah, I like, I, I think this is where, like talk about this game is perfect for this podcast because here we have a combat system that is a gun combat system that is, I, I haven't seen a gun combat system for modern firearms that I think balances so well between it's playable and it's comprehensible, but it's not like Rambo or a Chuck Norris movie where it's just ridiculous. Exactly. This, this feels, this is going to feel, you're, you're not going to play this game and feel like, oh, that could never happen. You're actually you're going to play this game. And you're going to be like, oh, that's exactly what I thought would 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 happen in this instance. And and the cool thing too, you know, you just said it like, oh crap, you know that we, we we're gonna we're out of fuel, we're out of food, um, we don't have a whole lot of ammunition left, and these bandits like they took our stuff, and so winter is coming, and we have to do this. Like we have to figure out a way to get our stuff back, or we're going to die. The fact that the game has all those rules that govern those kinds of things, the survival aspect, and then you have this combat system that is, it's, it's, you know, it's lethal. Now, of course, if you are constantly, or rather, if you are not 
conscious of at least having some of your party use their minor action almost every round to aim, you're going to be spraying a lot of ammunition around, but that's real. Because if you're running from place to place and shooting, again, that works in an 80s action movie. It works far less well in, in reality. Correct, which is why as a GM, you know, you're going to have a lot of people running around that probably aren't very well trained. And so initially you can spring those on your players. And so you can kind of slow roll them into the idea of how lethal it is by not having them encounter Spetsnaz elite troopers right away. The other thing to, to bear in mind with this game is the, the stat empathy, and that's where your command, uh, persuasion, and medical aid skills are. In that same scenario we just talked about, you could go out possibly with your persuasion and persuade the little hamlet, uh, the, the several hunters who are really good shots that you ran into a week ago, you could persuade them to help you and set up that base of fire you know, you could use that character who did go to be that officer or that leader, or, you know, even if you picked a civilian character who's not very good at much, but maybe they were uh, some sort of uh, executive at IBM and you want to play the guy who's got all these managerial and leadership skills, they might be able, and they speak Polish, and they're able to go to that village that has those hunters you ran into and you were kind of on friendly terms. You traded some, some ammo for some food. And you might be able to convince them to help you in that situation so they could set up on the hill with their hunting rifles with scopes and really be that base of fire that's, you know, shooting guys from long range in the head while you're, you know, maneuvering on this. So there's ways that you can think about in this game, figuring out how to do things without that. I'm just going to kick in the door with my broadsword or my 245s blazing because that'll get you killed in this game more often than not. So you've got to come up with better ideas. And I think some groups will really like that style of play. You know, how can we, how can we set up that cool ambush? How do we, how do we get people to help us? How do we run? How do we, we need to learn how to effectively evade and, and break contact from the enemy. And these are all concepts that you have in the real world of, of military small arms combat. Because, you know, the, the, the role-playing idea of we're just going to fight everything straight on, head on, you know, fair fight. Uh, chivalry's dead in Twilight 2000. You better not do it that way. It's something that we're not going to talk about, but, um, you know, there are, there's full vehicle combat rules. So if you are lucky enough to have a tank or something like that, uh, there are rules for that. They, you know, they've, they've got all that. They've got heavy weapons rules. There are artillery rules. If you happen to get your hands on an M109 um, howitzer, you can shoot that at people, I guess. Uh, there are also rules for establishing, fleshing out, and maintaining a base of operations. So I, it's actually what's fascinating about this is there's a lot of this, like if you, if, if Traveler scratches an itch for you, uh, and the idea of of simulating like a, a oh, how would, how would I say it like a like the full spectrum of operation you know like D and mean for for better or worse I mean D and D is about kicking indoors and killing goblins and it's not about like who am I going to pay to sharpen my sword or like watch my uh, uh, my little house with a thatched roof. While I'm off adventuring, like who has, and I've done this and my players hated me for it. Like I had this once where 
know, they had a house, the adventurers had a house in a village and they were pissed off at the village. Cause they're like, we're protecting you. We deserve that house for free. And they're like, what do you want handouts? But, um, but like people come and like rob their house while they weren't there and steal their crap. You know, that, that's, that's not something that full spectrum of life, yeah. uh, that, that traveler, uh, you know, addresses so well, or in some cases, in my opinion, like too much, too well, you know, you can do in this. And I think that uh, you just hit it. The idea that um, you don't have to play like the combat monster character. You could build a character that has an interesting and useful niche. That's not so esoteric that it's only used. That puzzle piece is only useful once. Like, you know, you could play the Polish teenager who gets picked up by this, you know, group of us soldiers and the Polish teenager speaks Polish and English likes American rock and roll uh, and also has an aptitude for fixing things. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a totally viable character. Um, as long as your GM isn't just going to treat everything like hammer nail and, and always want it to be about fighting. Um, Mutant year zero, I believe I played that once or twice. Yeah, we and, played uh, a couple, just a few know, sessions. Had an interesting, you know, sort of like, I don't want to say stronghold, but there was an interesting like sort of mechanic for keeping your base up and operational kind of like you were talking about. And I can see where that would fit into this at some point as well, because that's exactly, you know, the same company made designed and made this game. And so that, you know, if, if that kind of thing appeals to you, uh, I think you would the, the like rules this. Are similar. There's so, I mean, the game rules are basically about fighting with ranged weapons for the most part. And then just task resolution. And then task resolution. But there is so, between the folds and the nooks and the crannies of that, there's so much room, like we just talked about, for actual role-playing. Because if you run this as just a straight-up combat game, you're going to be rolling up new characters quite frequently, I think. But if you run it as a role-playing game where you really get into, like, how can we do the, how can we get the maximum use out of our skills, whether that be persuasion and tech rather than you know ranged combat and and close combat um and then leverage those where they're needed in order to be successful and accomplish what we want i think you you're going to see that the role-playing opportunities they will just crawl out of the woodwork at you like crazy as a gm because you'll have to do that it'll push your players to do that because they'll just realize after their first or second encounter man, that was, that could have been so deadly, so fast. Like if we'd have been the ones who walked into that ambush. Almost think that this would be the kind of thing that you, you might want to start off, like for, for players who have no military training or experience. And, and obviously I'll say like that is in no way necessary to enjoy or get your head around it, no way. But I think actually maybe the best way to, to get a sense of that would be to Create some characters using the archetype system like you and I did. Get your group and have a GM put together just a skirmish or a series of skirmishes. Use the enclosed maps and counters and and run it like run it like the original D, you know, progenators ran back in the early 70s, where they were playing a tabletop minis game and they said, What if there was a dragon? Because they all just read The Hobbit. And you then you give your character a name, and like that's where role playing began. Like strip it right down, strip it down to the nails, and just run it as a skirmish combat game. And I think your players would go, "Oh, I have to be smart, and I have to maneuver behind that rock, and we have to lay down fire. And when too much lead flies at us, it's time to break contact and leave." Once they get a sense of, 
the, 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 the combat rules have bite. Then sit down and make characters and say, hey, we're going to be, you know, American soldiers dropped in the middle of nowhere in Poland. What do we want to do? We're on our own. What does that mean? Like, what is our story going to be? Do we want to get home? Do we want to just, you know, grow roots where we are and try to survive? I mean, a lot of role-playing opportunities in that respect. To me, ultimately, all of the, the, the sort of crunchy realism that is packed into this in a very accessible and easy way to get your head wrapped around and start playing rapidly. All of that to me is just to make it so it can be that cool role-playing game where you actually get to do some of those things, where you get to interact with the folks there in notional Poland and get them to help you or discover that these people aren't going to help you at all. And actually these people need killing because they're evil or whatever it may be. You know, it's, it's got a lot of, if you like the walking dead, you'll like this game. Yeah, I was thinking that too when I was reading the base building rules. Uh, spot on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, without zombies, but if you like The Walking Dead, this is this would be right up your your alley. And again, I I think that the, there's a a significant amount of interplay between elegant and simple rules and the type of vibe that it's trying to uh, to establish. Well. All right. Now all we need to do is find some time where our schedules coincide and find some other people who want to play this, and then we can do that. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on. Do you have anything else that you would like to add, like uh, a pearl of wisdom or a gem of reflection that you would, uh, you would throw at this if someone's thinking like, huh, should I buy this or not? Or huh, should I get involved in playing it or not? Uh, for those who might be like me, who are kind of I love role-playing games, but I also love miniature war games. I, I, I plan on using these rules to run like modern day uh, miniature war games, uh, just, you know, tabletop skirmish games. I think the rules are, are very uh, focused enough that they can do that. And, uh, you know, maybe that would bring some people in who are war gamers into the RPG side because then they see like, okay, well, there's 50 other pages in this book and a whole other book that has nothing to do with what we've been doing. What is all this GM? Yeah. And you're like, well, this is the actual, you know, how we play out the rest of what happened before and after this combat encounter, you know, again and again. So that I think if you're, if you've got anybody in your, in your sphere of influence, who's just like a miniature war gamer and you're trying to kind of like convert them to war gaming or I mean to RPG, this is, this might be the one that could do it. And, you know, and likewise, you know, we, you and I, we've played now, uh, we played like two, we just slapped together skirmish encounters. Um, we've played this for a total of maybe like five hours or so between those two sessions. And the first time we only used the maps and counters that came in the box worked great. The second time you brought over a bunch of your minis, we set it up on my game table with terrain and buildings and like a burned up BMP and all that kind of stuff. And then we used a, um, which used a measuring tape and we kept it. It was, it was, it was definitely close range. I think that if you wanted to use minis, you would be limiting your encounter to a closer range affair, but that worked fine. Yeah. And like you said, you kind of noticed that some story elements were kind of driven out of that because of the fact that there was actual terrain on the board and it would kind of determine, you know, well, those people are definitely in the open because that's what it shows. Yeah. Whereas with the hexes on the maps, it's 10 meters of broken ground. So they're just, everyone's assumed to be in the cover of the broken ground. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it all depends on the, the granularity that you're looking for. But ultimately, if there's any other pearl of wisdom I could give, it would just be if you've, 
if if you just want to have a, a game that you could go to when you don't really want to do anything but a quick combat encounter. Like I'm going to bring my guys over for an RPG and we're going to, we're going to RPG, but we're basically just going to play out a combat encounter for three hours. Cause that's over two hours. Cause that's all we've got time for. This is a lot of fun for that. Yeah. Well, you have a deck of 52 cards. Yeah. You could just pull one of those out and add, you know, and flesh it out. There's a description. It has the enemies. It has how many, I mean, it's literally on one side of a card and it tells you the, the, the setting uh, it gives you because of the symbols that are on the the encounter cards. It indicates which type of map that comes in the box you should use. Yeah, you could easily. I mean, you could run a few of those in a night if people are proficient with the rules and you know have a a little bit of an RP skin over the top of it. But it's just a a, a skirmish game. That'd be fun. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think it has multiple uses. Uh, it's not just a role playing game. There's a lot more here than your average role playing game. So it's, I think if you're, if you're inclined at all toward this type of, you know, modern warfare type of survival, apocalyptic, any of those things, you know, and you've got some discretionary income, I think this is something you should check out. Yeah, I agree. All right, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening as always. And if you want to hear more about Twilight 2000 in the future, track us down on Facebook, Fluff and Crunch, uh, or leave a message for us directly through Anchor. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. You can visit our show's homepage at anchor.fm slash fluff and crunch. That's F-L-U-F-F-N-C-R-U-N-C-H. We would really appreciate feedback and reviews on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. Thanks so much.